and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. You can't make war in the Middle East without Egypt, and you can't make peace without Syria. So goes the famous Kissinger 1970s aphorism. But 50 years on, many believe you can't make either peace or war without Iran. When the 7th of October attack occurred, many spoke confidently of Iran's involvement, and there is little doubt that Iran supports Hamas, financially and in terms of arms, but developments in the last three weeks have thrown doubt on that initial knee-jerk assessment of direct involvement in the planning and execution of the attack. Because the question remains what it has been for many years now. What does Iran hope to get out of this? That question invites tantalizingly simple answers, which, as tantalizingly simple answers tend to be, are often wrong. My guest today is here to help us answer that basic question and many besides, while avoiding the lure of binary simplicity. She's the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House and has dedicated her academic career to understanding Iran's domestic and foreign goals. Welcome to The Bunker, Dr. Sanam Vakil. Thank you very much for having me. Sanam, before diving into events in Israel and Iran's connections, can we take a moment first to put in place some context? How important was the collapsing of the Iran nuclear deal by Trump? There are still respectable commentators who say Iran was just stringing the US along and collapsing the deal has actually slowed down its nuclear ambitions. And many who say we were really getting somewhere and collapsing the Iran deal has set us back. I suppose I land somewhere in the middle. I think that President Trump's 2018 withdrawal from the JCPOA has certainly set back the opportunity to build on the Iran nuclear agreement and have the international community move beyond nuclear diplomacy to build uh, greater trust with Iran and work uh, to limit Iran's investments in asymmetric defense, its ballistic missile program, and of course, um, the most challenging aspect that the international community faces with Iran, which is its role in the region and its support for groups like mm-hmm. Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, as well as uh, popular mobilization units in Iraq. So by shutting down the deal, effectively what limited trust was built between Iran, Europe, uh, the UK and the United States really fractured. And inside Iran, the consequences were also quite severe. Uh, Moderates, pragmatists, political figures who thought that Iran's security and stability uh, would be best served through engagement with the West slowly became marginalized. And in parliamentary and then the 2021 presidential elections, they were pushed to the side. So today inside Iran, we have a conservative political establishment that while not perfectly unified on all issues, is in charge of the unelected, but also the elected institutions. So there are a number of consequences there. Um, Almost exactly a year on from the death of Masa Amini, we had an almost identical case of Armita Geravand, allegedly challenged by the morality police for not wearing a headscarf properly, ending up in a coma and then dying. How stable is the political situation inside 
Iran right now? Well, this tragic death of, of yet another young woman foreshadows the social um, and ultimately political tensions in Iran, um, but they are uh, rubbing up against a system and a political establishment that is heavily securitized and very resilient and resistance to political reform, uh, social reform. Uh, so through the protests we saw over the past year, um, the state has been really resilient in willing to use violence um, and, and coercive control to stay in power. Uh, yeah. So while there's dissent, the state is quite strong. Salman Rushdie once wrote that authoritarianism is always worse when it's got something supernatural behind it. How important is the theocratic character of the regime to its stability? How linked is it to religion? Well, I think that ideology and the religious ideology that underpins the Islamic Republic is seen by the political establishment as, as the bedrock of this state. And uh, Rushdie is right in saying that ideology has helped keep the state uh, together, try to bind individuals and institutions into a greater cause. It is also hard for the state to compromise ideologically because it has married itself to uh, religious interpretations of Islam. Uh, so they're sort of caught up in their own ideological connectivity and history. And, mm, um, mm. And, and that poses a challenge when 44 years on from the foundation of the Islamic Republic in 1979, people inside Iran are less bound by religious ideas, less convinced by the political establishment, the system, see the hypocrisy, corruption, the poor governance, and thereby, you know, question the, the, the foundations and the religious establishment very openly. Mm -hmm. Now, moving on to the relationship between Iran and Hamas, uh, former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Martin Indyk, says that Hamas does not take direction from Iran, but coordinates with it. Is that a fair summary, do you think? Yes, I think that is a very fair summary. Iran has a very complex and not uniform relationship with the myriad of groups that it supports across the Middle East. Iran is oftentimes seen to be the sort of puppet master and I think that's a misportrayal. Part of the success of what is known as Iran's forward defense strategy, where uh, in order to protect Iran from perceived threats of Israel and the United States, it has created groups and pushed itself closer to Israel and, and U.S. installations across the Middle East. Mm. And the way Iran has been able to sustain those relationships is by allowing autonomy for these groups. Iran is not a natural partner. It has different history, different culture, even in, in the case of Hamas and Iran, different religious interpretations of Islam. And I would just also add, 
Iran has had differences with all of its groups over time. Iran and Hamas, you know, took time off during the Syrian war where Hamas was very opposed to Iran's categorical and military support for Bashar al-Assad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there have certainly been uh, periods of tension um, that are worthwhile noting. You see, this, this I think is a really vital question, especially when we come to consider, for instance, how tightly is Hezbollah controlled by Iran? If you allow for the nuance that they're not one entity, you know, they are cooperating, coordinating regimes. I'm trying to fathom a situation where Hezbollah really wants to enter the fray, but Iran doesn't want it to, or Iran really wants Hezbollah to enter the fray and Hezbollah doesn't want to. How, how might those tensions behind the scenes play out? Well, um, it, you know, it's quite interesting. I think there, there is a hierarchy also of Iran's closeness with these different groups. And there is certainly much more history and ideological connectivity and dependency between Iran and Hezbollah that has mm. actually emerged since the death of Iran's Quds Force commander, um, Qasem Soleimani, in 2020, when he was killed by the U.S. during this period of tensions. Um, as a result of his death, and Soleimani had a very sort of um, tight personal relationship with commanders and leaders all around the region, um, Iran transitioned away from relying on just this one key figure and built more of a decentralized access that was dependent on Hezbollah as a key sort of coordinator and node that would bring the, the different groups together. Um, Hezbollah is the most important relationship that Iran has invested in. And because of Hezbollah's proximity on Israel's border and because of Hezbollah's military capacity, as well as the political role that Hezbollah plays within Lebanon, um, it is Iran's most important asset. So it effectively won't gamble or call upon Hezbollah to get involved. That is very much going to be a decision, I think, by Hassan Nasrallah himself. And mm-hmm. he is actually um, not commented uh, in a Friday statement since October 7th, but is planning a big premiere tomorrow. So, you know, everyone is waiting to hear what he's going to say and how he's going to walk a fine line between remaining committed to the axis of resistance, providing support for Hamas, but also ultimately protecting um, his place, political position, and military capacity in Lebanon. Mm, that's that's absolutely fascinating. So in political terms, Iran doesn't want to ask the question unless it knows it will get a positive answer effectively. Yes um, and no in the sense that I don't think Iran is asking the question. Um, mm-hmm. It's a discussion uh, where yep. they are strategizing together on you know, what is the right tactical response. Uh, I think the goal is to provide as much potential military assistance to Hamas without compromising their own positions. I don't personally anticipate that Hezbollah is going to go all in anytime soon. I think that from a strategic perspective, 
it makes more sense for Hezbollah to only enter into a broader conflict with Israel as a, as a last resort. Hezbollah is, is a pragmatic actor. It has grown into an actor of political influence within Lebanon. And I don't think it's as suicidal an entity as it is often portrayed. The Iran Javan magazine, which I think is published in Canada for the diaspora, but seems to me to be sympathetic to the regime, suggests that, and I quote, this self-desired crisis has forced Joe Biden to seek Iran's help to reduce the current tension in the region. Does this maybe begin to hint at what Iran wants from this, and more generally, a, a seat at the table, basically? I'm not sure I would agree with that analysis that Joe Biden is turning to Iran. Um, I haven't seen any sort of signal of that. And I, I think actually the Biden administration and the president himself has shown very little interest since coming into office in engaging with Iran. It's important to note that the Biden administration committed to rejoining the Iran nuclear agreement or JCPOA, uh, but then hasn't been able to deliver on that. And I think it's connected to the president's awareness and distaste that Iran is a toxic asset um, mm. and any kind of agreement with Iran would have blowback on his presidency and potential for re-election. But that said, sort of going to your uh Real question. I think, you know, when we think about what Iran wants and what Iran is seeking, and there isn't just one Iran, it's important to acknowledge that there are domestic forces and factional dynamics in Iran that lead to competing ideas of what Iran wants. But in general, let's say the goal of the political establishment is to protect the uh, stability and security of the Islamic Republic, maintain the territorial integrity of Iran, and they then have contending tactics to achieve those goals. Iran has relied on its forward defense strategy, where it supports proxy groups and creates significant pockets of influence um, hmm. across the Middle East. Um, it is seen to be effective inside Iran at protecting Iran from attack and infiltration. And it's seen to be effective at pressuring the international community and regional states simultaneously. So this, this strategy actually is celebrated as more successful than uh, the Iran nuclear agreement and, and possibility mm. of Iran's economic integration and engagement with the international community. The attack on October 7th has been narratively compared by many to 9-11. That is obviously a useless comparison in very many ways. But I do think back to the soul-searching that followed 9-11, and I find that the same question was being asked again and again in terms of motivation. Why would they do a thing that would obviously provoke a massive reaction by a far superior military force? Is the answer maybe that a level of chaos surrounding a country is essential to the survival of its autocratic regime? Does Iran basically need an unstable Middle East around it? I think, again, Iran has multiple aims here. 
you know, Iran is looking to be a relevant player. And as you, mm. you know, previously alluded to, Iran is looking to have a seat at the table. And I, I would agree with that. Um, I don't think it's looking to have a seat at the American table, but uh, has time and again wanted to be a, a regional interlocutor. Some people call Iran a hegemon. Iran, despite its consistent support for Hezbollah, Hamas, the Houthis in Yemen, and um, its really massive levels of interference and influence inside Iraq, has through the past few years, also succeeded in restoring relationships with the uh, Gulf Arab states, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. Um, And this has been also a striking achievement. Uh, Iran has worked asymmetrically, putting pressure uh, to break itself out of containment, to break itself out of the maximum pressure sanctions. And so, you know, I think it, it seems counterintuitive as to why Iran would risk that. Ultimately, Iran has, is ticking a few boxes here. There's the psychology of embarrassment, showing that Israel is weak, catching Israel off guard, showcasing that Iran at the end of the day still is one of the primary defenders of Palestinians, resurrecting the Palestinian issue that would that was sort of dormant for far too long. Um, Iran also, of course, has achieved the slowing down of Israeli-Saudi normalization, which would have been a big challenge for Iran. Iran is showing that it, it in a way, has checkmated uh, many countries in the region, be it Israel, be it Saudi Arabia, and that the strategy of containment of the Islamic Republic has failed. Is there a question more widely around how many enemies can the West fight at the same time? With Ukraine still going on, the situation in Israel, tensions with China, Is there a danger we may reach a a sort of tipping point where quite a lot of players, to use a poker metaphor this time, go, I'm all in? This is indeed why this is such a dangerous moment. Um, There is a very deep concern that regional escalation can come not because of active choice, but because of mistakes made. And we are watching deeper divisions between the global north and global south, uh, Middle Eastern populations um, and the West over this war that I think are going to continue to be exploited by countries like Iran and Russia and China. Um, Mm. The multilateral institutions in the United Nations are also very fragile in moments like this where it becomes very clear to non-political people that international law, um, human rights, norms are not applied in the same way. And I think that is really very dangerous. And I'm very worried about the long-term authority of the quote-unquote West, the United States, um, at this point. So, okay, to, to end on a less apocalyptic note, um, <laughs> Halle, Halle Sfandiari of the Wilson Center has written that, and I quote, public resentment is building against the regime's support for proxy wars. 
There have, for example, been reports of people carrying Palestinian flags being booed at a Tehran football match. Mm. Um, is there a peril for the Iranian regime, actually, that they may stretch domestic patience too thin? Well, this is actually, um, if we do uh, want to point to some very positive features about Iran, Iran's population has been long frustrated by the government's support and sending of resources to these resistance groups and these Arab causes. In fact, there's long been sort of chant in Persian that says, you know, not Gaza, not Lebanon, I give my life for Iran. Um, mm. So there is that nationalist, quite popular sentiment and backlash inside the country. But the Islamic Republic, if we go back to its authoritarian nature, like many of the the systems in the Middle East, um, doesn't very much take into account the view of uh, the public in foreign policy. Um, mm. and, and, you know, that in itself lies the challenge. You do have Iranian activists actually also being quite careful. They're supporting, making calls for a ceasefire, uh, making calls to protect Palestinian lives, and Israeli lives, to be quite frank. But, you know, they have to walk a fine line there um, because they do very much recognize that, again, here, Iran is the patron of these groups. And, you know, Iran is destabilizing the region. So, you know, it is a delicate balance for how they um, address and call out the state and its destructive predatory practices. Dr. Sanam Vakil, thank you so much for, for illuminating such a, a complicated subject. Thank you for having me. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of author Jared Brock, made all the more poignant by the recent gesture of Yoshevet Lifshitz to her captor. Shalom is the medicine I'd prescribe, a deep God-breathed indwelling of peace and prosperity. A sense of wholeness is what the holy city needs. It's what the Middle East needs. It's what I need, a blessing. This is Alexandre in the bunker saying over and out. was written and presented by Alex Andre. The producers were Liam Tate and Eliza Davis-Beard. Audio production was by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Music is by Kenny Dickinson and artwork is by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>